Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Breast Cancer Conversations. It is so nice to be speaking with all of you today. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Please be sure to subscribe. We release our podcast once a week, usually on Mondays, so you can always have something to look forward to as we begin our week together. Before we jump into today's conversation, I just want to give a quick shout out to all of the great, amazing resources we have on our website survivingbreastcancer.org. All of our podcast listeners are invited to join us on Thursday nights for our Thursday Night Thrivers meetup. We meet on Zoom every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can RSVP from our website and a Zoom link will be emailed to you. We also send out weekly newsletters on Mondays and Fridays. We have an every other Sunday metastatic breast cancer series that we produce, as well as a once a month breast cancer book club that we host. The best part about the book club is that we don't read any books that have to do with cancer. It's pure escapism, a lot of fun, and we meet on the first Sunday of every month. You can check out what book we're reading, again, on our website. Today on the podcast, we are going to speak about clean eating. This goes into a deeper discussion about nutrition, and Carla is going to share with us all of those crazy questions that I have, because as you know, if you've been listening to this for a while, I was a strict vegan before my breast cancer diagnosis. And yes, it is true. No matter how much kale or broccoli you eat, vegans can get breast cancer. Carla shares an amazing story. She was no evidence of disease after her first diagnosis and 11 years later ended up with metastasis to the bones. She has completely changed her lifestyle, her eating habits, and is now progression-free. I am just so excited to have her on the conversation today. She's going to answer some of our questions, share her personal experiences, and leave us with amazing resources. Let's talk about why you want to eat clean, why you want to consider plant-based eating. And that doesn't necessarily mean you don't ever eat any meat. It's just 90% plant-based. Then we'll talk about things you can avoid, healthy changes you can make, and healthy things you can add. And then I'll go into those practical tips and tricks that you can apply to your life. And we're even gonna talk a little bit about eating out when you're on a plant-based diet. Welcome to the conversation. Well, I'm Carla Nance Giroux. I am a breast cancer thriver, a longevity geek, and a holistic cancer coach. I was originally diagnosed with breast cancer in 2003. I was just 37 years old. I had a five-year-old and a two-year-old. So it was pretty scary, pretty devastating. Um, looking back on it now so long ago, it was like, well, nine months kind of over and done and you know, move forward on life again. I was really just interested in getting back to taking care of my sons and getting back to my career. And, you know, there wasn't the internet and I didn't know a lot about holistic healing and alternative and complementary methods. And so I went the um, conventional route. I had uh, chemotherapy, a mastectomy, radiation, and five years of tamoxifen. And every year that I hit my anniversary, I kept thinking, okay, good. I'm, I'm, I'm done. This is good. And I got to 10 years and I thought, great, at 11 years, I got a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. So it returned, it returned to bone. Um, I found it actually relatively early. Uh, uh, something weird was going on in my leg 
And um, my knee just kept giving out on me. And I, I didn't fall down a lot, but I fell down a couple of times. I wasn't able to do lunges anymore. I was like, this is weird. So I started looking at chiropractor and a pinched nerve and then on to an orthopedic and an x-ray of the knee and then finally to a neurologist and an MRI. And when they did the MRI of the body, they found that the cancer had grown in such a way that it was blocking a nerve pathway. So it was growing in the bone opening enough to block that opening and pinch that nerve. And so immediately back to my um, oncologist to find out what to do. And I really give him a lot of credit for giving me hope because he told me right away, this is a chronic disease we can manage. I said, great, I'm going to manage the hell out of this because I plan to live to be 100, healthy and sane, and I'm not going to let this get in my way. And so he was all on board with me, just said he wasn't going to be able to make the birthday party in 2065, which, okay, fine, you get a pass on that. So I really did jump into managing it full on with everything that I could. Every, you know, I hired a cancer coach. I changed my diet. I really did a lot of lifestyle and, you know, cleaning up the toxins and all that kind of stuff. And um, that was in 2014 when I got that diagnosis. In about 2016, I did have a liver tumor show up. But within six months, it was fully resolved. And since then, 2016, I have seen no evidence of disease, um, no more cancer. I can't really say the bone scan is no evidence of disease because, you know, the bone scan, it's scarred. It's never going to look clean again. And so all they'll tell me is it's stable. But when it comes to my um, um, CT scans, no evidence of disease. So that's my story. I've been thriving Um, all along and really pleased to have that four plus years of no evidence in my pocket. And I'm going to keep it that way. So when this happened at year 11, did this even cross your mind that it could have been metastasis? You know, it really didn't. Um, In the beginning, it didn't. I noticed first my shin was numb. I would shave my legs. Why is my shin numb? That's weird. And then the knee thing with the doing lunges when I exercise and stuff. But no, it never crossed my mind. I got that MRI results and they're like, um, like, I think I had it on a Thursday and they were supposed to call me on Monday and they called me on a Friday afternoon and like, well, with your history, we see some unusual activity and we called your primary care physician. It's like, okay, immediate freak out. Like now I'm thinking the worst And, you know, the primary care physician can't do a whole lot for me. And it's a Friday afternoon. So I got to spend the weekend fretting over it. Like, what can you do over the weekend except like be like a nutcase? Like, oh, but there you are and taking such control and management over the situation, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. I'm project manager and, and, you know, by by profession and (laughs) in my background, like I'm going to manage this. So that's, that's what I've been doing. And I just love sharing what I have learned and what I've implemented and and how it's really helped me. You mentioned also in your introduction about a cancer coach. What is a cancer coach? I hired a woman that um, actually my, my therapist told me about her because I had said, you know, I'm done therapy. I'm in pretty good shape. It's November. I think I'm going to take the holidays off and whatnot. And then I got diagnosed in late November, early December. And I called her up like, I need you. Oh. And she happened to know this woman who was an RN 
Um, she was a, or is, um, a holistic cancer coach. And she at the time was working at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America in the mind, body, spirit department of cancer treatment centers. I didn't go there for my treatment, but I contacted her. So a cancer coach is somebody that can help in a number of ways. I'm slightly different because I'm not an RN. I don't have that background that she had. But what I have done is gotten certification from the wisdom of the whole in coaching. I've gone through the radical remission teacher training and coaching certification. So I am prepared and equipped to really coach people through this, to be there. You think about coaching, it's somebody that stands just beside and behind you. Mm -hmm. I'm not leaving you. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm helping you on your journey, helping you make the right decisions. And if you ask me what I did, sure, I'll tell you. But what it's more about is you figuring out what you need to do for you. And as you alluded to, from a diet and a supplement perspective, it's so bio-individual that everything really is. It's all very personal, the choices that you make and the, the journey that you take. How did you even start to make some of these lifestyle changes or dietary changes? Maybe giving our listeners and viewers a sense of what was your diet and lifestyle prior to the metastatic diagnosis? Because it sounds like you were pretty healthy regardless because you've already gone through a breast right. cancer diagnosis. Right. I would say I was pretty healthy, but honestly, um, what I learned was that just because I ate vegetables and salads didn't mean I was eating healthy. <laughs> the standard American diet is not a great diet. And um, there's a lot of, even when you don't really think about it, I mean, cereal bar, or granola bar, that's a highly processed food. And that's not necessarily going to do your body any good. There's lot, not a lot of nutrients in that that to outweigh the heavily processed and the, the bad things that are in it. So I was, I was okay from a food perspective. I had actually just before my diagnosis done a, um, a clean eating kind of diet where I eliminated dairy and um, some meats and, you know, kind of reduced meat and um, dairy, dairy completely out, sugar minimized. But what I realized when I got this diagnosis that I had to absolutely change the environment in which that cancer grew because over that past 11 years, it would have been growing. And if I didn't change something drastically, it was going to continue to grow. So for me, it was a, my life depends on it sort of change. And I immediately stopped eating all white sugar. And in fact, um, the fruits that were higher in sugar and even the vegetables, I cut those out too. So there was a time when I wasn't eating bananas or pineapple or carrots, right? Because they just have a higher glycemic in index. Um, but that was, you know, right in the crux of it. I'm like, okay, everything's got to go. And it was really hard because it was like, well, what's left? What do you eat? Yeah. Shortly after doing all of this, I, you know, leaving the grocery store with my husband and like, kind of in like, I don't, I wasn't really crying, but I was upset. I'm like, I just want the damn cookie. And he's, well, then eat the damn cookie. And I'm like, but I can, you don't understand. It's not okay. Right. Just because I want it, just because I'm whining about it doesn't make it okay. My life depends on me maintaining these lifestyle changes that I've come to know are going to save my life. So I have found cookies that aren't made with all the crap that most cookies are made with, right? And the white sugar and the flour, you know, so there are healthier alternatives. 
And I have really come to learn a lot about how to find those healthier, healthier alternatives and how to make those swaps and, and do things that are sustainable. Take some time. And I will say it was difficult that first, you know, few months, first year, but I'm in a really good place with it now where it's just easy. It's just what I do. Yes. That's amazing. And I think you bring up such a good point too, where like, yes, you think you're doing everything right. Or, you know, we're not saying that bananas or carrots or some of these, you know, higher glycemic foods are, are negative or bad for you. Right. It's really just in terms of where you are on this health journey and what your body needs in this particular environment, having my own diagnosis of higher potassium. And they were like, cut out spinach and banana and, and oranges. I was like, wait, 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 what? Like, have you seen how I make my smoothies in the morning? Like, right? Like, I think I'm being healthy. And it's really just trying to get that better sense of getting your blood counts done, figuring out how your body is responding. And we talk so much about going back to that root cause, right? It's not taking more medicine necessarily to alleviate symptoms, which is also helpful too. But at the same time, it's what's causing this and how can we tweak that and shift that? So, right. I appreciate yep. that. I'm glad I'm not the only one who's told not to eat like carrots or bananas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you do, you know, sometimes you have to weigh the risk benefits, right. And you, and you really do have to think about it from a bio individual perspective, like what does buy and body need? So just because Laura can't eat bananas doesn't mean I can't, exactly. but yeah, it's choices that we have to make. And I'm going to talk about why you want to eat clean, why you want to consider plant-based eating. And that doesn't necessarily mean you don't ever eat any meat. It's just 90% plant-based. Then we'll talk about things you can avoid, healthy changes you can make, and healthy things you can add. And then I'll go into those practical tips and tricks that you can apply to your life. And we're even going to talk a little bit about eating out when you're on a plant-based diet. All right, let's start at the beginning. Why go plant-based? I really probably don't need to tell you a lot about chronic inflammation and uh, appearing to underlie most of the chronic disease of today, you know, including cancer. It is something that my integrative doctor looks at every time we do a terrain panel is what's my inflammation level. And a recent study indicated that the non-communicable chronic diseases such as inflammatory bowel disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, and pulmonary and cardiovascular diseases are becoming the leading cause of death throughout the world. And think about this, in 1950, about 10% of Americans were overweight or obese. That percentage jumped from 10% to 44% in the 60s, and we're all the way up to 72% today. So obesity is a big problem, and it's an, it's a problem when it comes to cancer too. And most of these chronic diseases are preventable because they're linked to lifestyle. So a modified diet, daily exercise, avoiding tobacco, and getting proper sleep can prolong our lives by preventing the occurrence of chronic diseases or improving the management of illnesses that do occur. And among these modifiable determinants of chronic diseases, Nutrition may be the most influential, and there is scientific evidence that increasingly supports the view that alterations in diet have strong effects on health throughout our life. The diets that are high in fruits, veggies, legumes, fiber, and certain spices have been shown to suppress that chronic inflammation and prevent the development of chronic diseases. 
And over the past few decades, studies have investigated the possible protective role of plant foods against those chronic diseases. Several of those studies have revealed that greater consumption of fruits and vegetables is associated with a lower risk of chronic disease, such as cancer. And then we have these, this evidence-based review of different diets. And there is no one diet that I'm going to say you should be on because it's, again, bio-individual and very personal. And not all of these diets um, are, are going to prove out you know, to be the best thing for, for everyone. But of these diets listed here, the research is telling us that after looking at these six different types of diets, the low-carb diet, the low-fat vegetarian or vegan diet, the low glycemic diet, a Mediterranean diet, a mixed balanced diet, and paleo diets, it's clear that the weight of evidence strongly supports a theme of healthy eating while allowing for variations on that theme. And you can see that they noted that they all potentially um, have the common thing that food, not too much, mostly plants. And that is a quote made famous by Michael, Michael Pollan, who is an author um, and uh, has done a lot of research on diets. The average American spends only 7% of their budget on food. That's less than people spend in any other nation on earth, which maybe that seems like progress, but just look at us. Three quarters of us are overweight. And six out of 10 of us suffer from chronic illnesses such as diabetes, heart disease, asthma, hepatitis, etc. So does our cheap food have anything to do with that? It might. It probably does. As a radical remission teacher and coach, I would be remiss if I did not mention the work of Dr. Kelly Turner. I am passionate about sharing her work. She researched over 1,500 cases of remissions from cancer. And she's now gone on to start looking at folks that have non-cancer chronic diseases. But she interviewed the survivors, these folks that found a remission after conventional medicine had given up on them and sent them home on hospice, or potentially they, they just went an alternative route to begin with. But she found that all of these radical remission survivors, over 1,500 of them, were utilizing 75 different factors in their healing but 10 of them were common among all of them. No surprise, one of them is radically changing your diet. And I'll tell you more about what Dr. Turner's research shows. But let's first talk about what we should avoid. And some of this is what Dr. Turner's research indicates, but we should avoid or at least greatly reduce processed foods. I would vote for eliminating processed foods, the highly processed foods, because they contain high amounts of poor quality fat, added sugar and salt, artificial color and flavor preservatives. They have a low amount of dietary fibers and a negligible amount of beneficial nutrients. They're particularly bad for our health as higher consumption of such foods increase the risk of many diseases, and elevates the rate of all-cause mortality. Where does dairy fall into all of this? Dairy products tend to be a repository of whatever pesticides, industrial chemicals, and other contaminants the cow has ingested. And at the same time, 
Dairy products have none of the fiber you need to control your hormones. And honestly, humans aren't meant to drink cow's milk. Cow's milk is meant to grow babies, calves, to 600-pound cows, after all. And if it's calcium you're looking for, there are healthier options. So forget all the marketing claims that you heard that milk does a body good and that you can't live without milk and you need it for, for your calcium. You can get calcium from soy milk, rice milk, almond milk, oat milk, spinach, other veggies, all kinds of places. Where do you think the cow gets their calcium? They don't make it on their own. They're eating grass, which is helping them to produce their calcium. This is so helpful. I love all of the alternatives, too, that we could use instead of dairy. You mentioned earlier that we don't have to cut out meat 100%, but to drastically reduce it. Can you tell us a little bit more? I said drastically reduce or eliminate. I've eliminated meat. I do some seafood. Oh my gosh, me too. I was a strict vegan, but now I incorporate salmon. Even reducing our meat intake has a protective effect. And research shows that people who eat red meat are at an increased risk of death from heart disease, stroke, or diabetes. And processed meats also increase the risk of death from those diseases. And what you don't eat because you're eating meat can also harm your health. So if your diet is low in nuts and seeds and seafood and fruits and veggies, then you're also increasing your risk of death. One thing I'll mention is that bacon, <laughs> hot dogs, um, while everybody seems to love bacon, it's, it contains high levels of sodium, which lead to high blood pressure and other problems. And that sodium is just the beginning. Part of the reason why bacon is so delicious is it's loaded with saturated fat. Saturated fats linked to heart disease and obesity. Danger also lurks in virtually all store-bought bacon because of the amount of preservatives it contains. And those preservatives have been linked to various health concerns from headaches to cancer. And according to the World Health Organization, processed meat, such as bacon and hot dogs, can be classified as carcinogens. And that's because of those nitrates. Now, if you're eating the meat and the cheese and the highly processed food, chances are you have elevated levels of inflammation in your body. And while short-term inflammation is good for us, it helps us to fight infection or it's due to injury and, and it's good in that case. But the inflammation that lasts for months or years is not. And chronic inflammation has been linked to a lot of problems. The elevated blood cholesterol is also a risk factor for heart disease and strokes to the leading killers in the United States. And that saturated fat, which is primarily found in meat, poultry, cheese, and other animal project products, is a major driver of our blood cholesterol levels. So diets such as those that are high in dairy, eggs, and meat can foster the growth of disease-promoting bacteria as well. There was a study done that showed when omnivores eat choline or carnitine, which is found in meat, poultry, seafood, eggs, and dairy, our gut bacteria makes a substance that's converted by our liver to a toxic product called TMAO. It's an unpronounceable word, trimethylamine N-oxide, and it's a molecule that's generated from that choline, that betaine, and that carnitine via our gut microbial metabolism. 
Another thing is that the animal protein, especially in the red and the processed meat, has been shown in study after study to increase the risk of type 2 diabetes as well. And the, in, the red meat intake, um, increasing red meat intake by more than just half a serving per day was associated with a 48% risk in diabetes. But the average omnivore in the U.S. gets more than 1.5 times the optimal amount of protein, most of it from animal sources. So when you think about cutting out meat and you're worried about your protein, it's definitely not a problem. If you're eating meat, you're probably getting a lot more protein than you really need. And that excess protein does not make us stronger or leaner. The excess protein is stored as fat or it's turned into waste. And animal protein is a major cause of weight gain, heart disease, diabetes, inflammation, and cancer. I've never had someone like describe bacon in such disgusting ways. Like everyone is like, oh my God, bacon, we love bacon. And I'm like thinking over here, oh my God, this is the easiest thing to like cut out because of all of the reasons you just mentioned. So kudos to that. Good. You mentioned when we're looking at our plate, part of our plate, about a quarter of it should be the whole grains. Can you tell me a little bit more about the good grains and the grains that we need to avoid? Eating the refined carbs or the simple carbs is linked to drastically increased risks of a lot of those diseases I've been mentioning. And almost every nutrition expert agrees that the refined carbs should be limited. Refined grains are grains that have had the fibrous and nutritious parts removed. And the biggest source is white flour made from refined wheat. So refined carbs have been stripped of all that fiber, the vitamins and the minerals. And so they're really now empty calories. They're also digested very quickly and that gives them a high glycemic index. That means that they, they lead to rapid spikes in blood sugar and insulin levels after meals. So eating foods high on the glycemic index has been linked to overeating and increased risk of many diseases. And sadly, sugars and refined grains are a very large part of the total carbohydrate intake in many countries. The main dietary sources of refined carbs are the white flour, the white bread, the white rice, your pastries, sodas, snacks, pasta, sweets, breakfast cereals, and all of that added sugar. And wheat is just something to be cautious of. It's a highly sprayed and genetically modified crop. You're going to want to do wheat, organic, non-GMO, whole wheat, if you do any at all. And whole grains like barley, brown rice, quinoa, oatmeal, popcorn, those things are good. Not the microwave popcorn in the bag. Don't do that. Um, but those are the whole grains that are good for you. And sugar? Eating too much added sugar can have many negative health effects. An excess of those sweetened foods and beverages can lead to the weight gain, the blood sugar problems, and that increased risk of diseases. And we know that sugar feeds cancer. We, I'm not saying it causes cancer. To date, there are no randomized controlled trials showing that sugar causes cancer. There is, however, an indirect link between sugar and cancer. Eating a lot of high sugar foods, such as the cakes and cookies and the sweetened beverages, can contribute to that excess calorie intake. And this may lead to the weight gain and the excess body fat. And research has shown that being overweight or obese increases the risk of 11 types of cancers, 
Be sure you're looking on the ingredient list for those hidden sugars as well. Read the labels and find a different product if there's added sugar in something that doesn't really need it. Quite honestly, I taste zero difference between the pasta sauce with sugar and the pasta sauce without sugar. So buy the one without sugar. Same goes for salad dressings and um, you know lots of other products. There's sugar in it. And I look at labels sometimes and I'm like, why? Why is there sugar in here? It's because Americans have become addicted to sugar. What should we be looking for when looking at labels? Sugar is also known as high fructose corn syrup, malt syrup, date sugar, grape sugar, malto, maltose, sucrose, fructose, dextrose, cane juice, treacle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a little bit scary. Get used to reading your labels and don't believe the marketing claims on the front of the label. Read the ingredient list. Wow, so much good information. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. I think I need to clean out my cabinets like immediately. What else do we need to know since I'm cleaning out the cabinets? We want to avoid products that are made with any of the crops that are genetically engineered. And most genetically engineered ingredients are products made from the big five, corn, soybeans, canola, beet sugar, and cottonseed. And those are used in processed foods. An estimated 92% of corn and 94% of the soy grown in the U.S. are genetically modified. So despite the fact that there's very little research on the long-term effect that these scientifically engineered foods have on us. And I recommend that of those big five, that you just always buy the non-GMO version of corn, soybeans, avoid canola, avoid beet sugar, et cetera. And um, those sweeteners, such as the fructose, the dextrose, and the glucose, those um, are often um, just modified food starches and, and they're, they're loaded up in you know the corn, the corn flour, the meal, the oil, the starch, the gluten, the syrup, all those sweeteners. It's, it's just a, a lot of stuff you just really don't need that doesn't have any nutritional value. And the sugar, beet sugar, it's not specified, if, if it's not specified as 100% cane sugar, it's likely from a genetically engineered sugar beet. And then your soy, I mentioned, is highly, highly genetically modified. Um, same with the canola oil, which is also known as rapeseed oil and the cottonseed oil. So those GMO crops were specifically developed to allow farmers to use more herbicides without killing the crops themselves. And this is problematic because continuous exposure to toxins, including pesticides, is one of the key environmental triggers for developing an autoimmune disease and maintaining a high toxic burden, which can cause your existing autoimmune condition to progress. And those GMOs disrupt your gut balance as well. So we've all heard of glyphosate, right? That's the herbicide that's used on the genetically modified crops. It's also a very potent chemical that can attack the bacteria in your gut. Unfortunately, the good bacteria in your gut, the kind that can help with digestion and keeping the bad bacteria in check, are more likely to be susceptible to glyphosate, while the bad bacteria, including strains that cause salmonella and botulism, are highly resistant to glyphosate. So this means that eating GMO foods can decrease your healthy bacteria and increase the bad bacteria, putting you at risk for candida overgrowth, leaky gut, 
and inflammation, which can contribute to autoimmune disease and cancer. And those GMO crops require huge amounts of chemicals that are harmful to our soil, water, the atmosphere, and the creatures. And increasing the need for stronger and more poisonous pesticides causing a growing epidemic of superweeds. So you've heard about the superbugs when it comes to antibiotics. Well, now we're creating superweeds when it comes to um, the pesticides. And this is contributing to the global warming problem. They're contaminating our organic and our local food systems. And even the beneficial insects can be harmed like the bees and the butterflies. So we should also be thinking about the state of our um, planet Earth as well. So look for packaging or produce stickers with USDA organic or non-GMO project seals. All organic foods must be non-GMO, but unless the product is labeled, not all non-GMO products are organic. I say always go non-GMO. And if you can't afford everything organic, that's okay. Check the EWG.org for the list of the um, dirty dozen and the clean 15 so that you know which foods are safe to buy non-organic and save yourself a little bit of money. So my least favorite topic to talk about is the role alcohol plays. And the reason why it's my least favorite is because I'm Italian. And what can I say? I love myself a glass of red wine. All right. So break it down for us and I'll try not to cry. We want to avoid or limit alcohol consumption. And this is one of the things that I immediately gave up when I was diagnosed with metastatic cancer. And remember, I was diagnosed in November. Did I ever feel like the biggest bump in a log that December? What a party pooper I was. But I got over it. I figured out how to still be fun and interesting without alcohol. Alcohol is made by adding yeast to crushed grains, fruits, veggies, and allowing that mixture to ferment. Frequent alcohol consumption has been shown to promote inflammation, and it may contribute to a number of health problems, right? It's also metabolized by our liver, and frequent intake can lead to increased fat inside our liver cells. Obviously, we know about alcohol abuse, which leads to cirrhosis, which is a very serious condition. And while alcohol intoxication is only temporary, Chronic alcohol abuse can impair brain function permanently. And alcohol abuse and depression are often linked. People may start abusing alcohol due to depression, or they may become depressed because they're abusing alcohol. It is simply addictive and highly toxic. And it's a risk factor for cancers of the mouth, throat, colon, breast, and liver. So if you're going to drink, be sure you're doing it in moderation. And moderate drinking is defined as one standard drink per day for women, two for men. And while heavy drinking is defined as more than three drinks per day for women and four for men, you got to think about it this way. One drink is a 12-ounce beer, an 8-ounce malt liquor, five ounces of wine, not filling your whole glass up, five ounces, and an ounce and a half shot of a hard liquor. Now, red wine may be one of the healthiest alcoholic beverages, probably due to its high concentration of antioxidants. The grape skins in red wine contain a polyphenol or a plant-based compound called resveratrol, which has been shown in laboratory studies to act as an antioxidant that can fight cancer. So it's theorized then that resveratrol may cancel out 
the negative effects of light drinking and help prevent cancer. I myself with ERPR positive breast cancer choose not to drink red wine. It increased my hot flashes. So that wasn't any fun. And I just don't have a taste for alcohol anymore. And if I want a little something um, and putting it, sparkling water in a wine glass doesn't do it for me, then maybe I'll have just a little vodka and soda or sip a tequila because you're going to sip it slower. And um, those are things that you're not adding a bunch of sugary concoctions to go with, right? So when you have a margarita, guess what it's loaded with? Not only the alcohol, but all the sugar and all of that stuff that goes with the mixer. Sorry, don't mean to rain on your parades, but <laughs> think about it from your health perspective. Let's talk a little bit about healthy changes and, and what is a healthy diet. And I mentioned Michael Pollan earlier. In his uh, research, he summarized it with that famous quote, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And in the studies he reviewed, the subjects derived the most benefit when they ate unprocessed foods in their wholest forms and when the majority of their diets were vegetables and when they maintained a low daily calorie intake. Now, I mentioned I was going to go back to the radical remission survivors. And what Dr. Turner found was those survivors did lots of different things when it came to their diets. So some of them were very specific and went vegan. Some of them went keto. Others went plant-based. It was all very bio-individual. So there is no one diet that the radical remission books or the work of Dr. Turner really prescribes to anybody. But the overall sweeping trends that the radical remission survivors did where they greatly reduced or eliminated meat, wheat, meaning those refined grains, sweets, and dairy products. And they replaced those things with veggies and fruit with half of their plate being dedicated to veggies and fruit. And they also increased um, their filtered water intake. So clean, good water, so mm -hmm. drinking lots of water. And the important thing to note is that all of the diets mentioned that vegan, you know, uh, plant-based and keto included eating those whole organic vegetables while reducing the sugar and the grains and the processed foods. And when you make those kinds of dietary changes, research shows that it can reduce your inflammation and strengthen your immune system, which is then helping your body to be better capable of removing the cancer cells more effectively. So if you look at the collective body of research on the impact of diet on illness over a 15 year time span, a team of researchers from across the United States determined that a diet rich in veggies, fruits, and plant-based proteins like beans and whole grains significantly decrease the risk of illness, cardiovascular disease, and cancer by 12 to 28%. We talked a little bit about gut health. Can you explain a little bit more about microbiome and what we can do to help improve our gut health? So the microbiome is those trillions of bacteria in your digestive tract. And that microbiome can predict whether or not you'll get colon cancer, for instance. So there was a study that showed certain short chain fatty acids suppress inflammation and cancer, whereas other microbial metabolites promote cancer growth. So gut health is of the utmost importance when it comes to preventing cancer. And our microbiome changes drastically depend on what we eat. And there was also a team of researchers at Tufts University that isolated diet alone as a cause of cancer. They found that a suboptimal diet accounted for 5% of 
of the invasive cancers, while 4 to 6% of diagnoses were attributed to alcohol intake, 7 to 8% of diagnoses were attributed to excessive body weight, and 2 to 3% were attributed to physical inactivity. And in that study, suboptimal meant eating too few veggies, fruits, and whole grains, and too much highly processed meat, red meat, and sugar-sweetened beverages. And of these factors, the high intake of processed meat and the low intake of whole grains were the two factors associated with the largest number of new cancer diagnoses. Cruciferous veggies should be eaten once every day. So that's your cabbage, your kale, your broccoli, your Brussels, um, your arugula, or what the Europeans call rocket is a cruciferous vegetable. Radishes are a cruciferous vegetable. So look up the list of cruciferous vegetables and make sure when you go shopping that you have enough to eat one every single day, one helping of cruciferous veggies. Now let's talk about phytoestrogens and breast cancer. And Laura and I talked a little bit about this ahead of time. And I, I, um, I do like to share this information and it is controversial, but there are studies that show, of course, you'll always find on any topic, study that's for and a study that's against, but phytoestrogens are plant-based compounds that mimic estrogen because their chemical structure is very similar to that of estrogen from the body. They have been found to be beneficial in combating symptoms and conditions caused by estrogen deficiency. So this may be a particular benefit to pre- and postmenopausal women who are having their hot flashes. Phytoestrogens may also play a role in fighting cancer. However, it's still controversial and more research is absolutely needed to understand this. Unfortunately, they don't spend a lot of time and money on researching something that can't be patented. But there we are. There are studies that have revealed that high consumption of soy products is associated with low incidences of hormone-dependent cancers, including breasts and prostates. Soybeans contain large amounts of, of isoflavones. Previously, it's been demonstrated that genistein, one of the predominant soy isoflavones, can inhibit several steps involved in carcinogenesis. So basically, it can inhibit the development of cancer. It is suggested that genistein possesses mechanisms of action, including inhibition and modulation of different signaling pathways associated with the growth of cancer cells. Moreover, genistein is also a potent inhibitor of angiogenesis. Uncontrolled angiogenesis is considered a key step in cancer growth, invasion, and metastasis. I want to mention that um, I see Dr. Keith Block of the Block Center for Integrative Cancer Treatment in the Chicago area. And I've talked to Dr. Block many times about soy and breast cancer and phytoestrogens and breast cancer. Dr. Block has told me that processed soy foods, such as soy burgers, typically contain very low amounts of that genistein and other soy items such as miso and soy sauce contain even less. In fact, he says a whole bottle of soy sauce contains only about six or seven milligrams of isoflavones, which would have no effect at all on breast cells, though it would be quite a lot of salt. So Dr. Block counsels that there's no need to pass on the tofu or the tempeh, so long as you're eating soy foods in moderation, just like anything else, and be sure 
your soy is non-GMO. Dr. Block also stated in, in a 2016 article that he wrote, um, he stated that in, sorry, I can send you guys the link later to Dr. Block's site for all these soy articles he's written, but he stated that in 2016, the studies suggested that eating moderate amounts of soy foods is safe for breast cancer survivors. In fact, in studies conducted by Dr. Anna H. Wu and others at the University of Southern California showed that women who consume approximately one to two servings of soy yeah. food each day, not isolated soy supplements, you want to avoid those, but if you eat soy food each day, you actually have a reduced risk of breast cancer recurrence or of being diagnosed with the disease. And moreover, these studies, uh, there were three studies in China and two in the US that provided further evidence that women who ate more soy had better survival after breast cancer diagnoses than those who ate the least soy. I can again share these different studies. I've, I've got the PubMed studies and you know links to those. If anybody wants those, I can bring pull those all together. Oops, pull those all together in a document for everyone. Carla, this yeah. has been amazing. Thank you so much for spending your evening with us and educating us. And I will definitely follow up with you for part two or invite you to write on our blog as well and continue to share your expertise with our community. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.